but it was almost like the equivalent of a sort of a multiplex, you know, entertainment centre for people because it really would have been quite a spectacle, I think. Yeah, I mean, if there's that sort of girl you fancy, you can't text or call her, but you know that she's likely going to be hanging out at the Henge. Hi, and welcome to the Country Life podcast. Uh, I'm your host, James Fisher. And on this week's episode, we are going to be talking about all things Stone Circle. Now, as some of you may guess, I am not much of an expert on uh, Neolithic structures, but thankfully I'm joined by Professor Vicky Cummings, the head of the School of History, Archaeology and Religion at Cardiff University, to talk me through all things Stone Circle. Welcome, Vicky. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Um, Vicky, what is a stone circle? Why do we have so many of them? Why don't we know what they do? <laughs> well, a stone circle is ex- does exactly what it says on the tin, which is it is a circle of stones. So they are often thin and upright stones. Um, they're set in a circle. So they're... Um, their narrow end is stuck into the ground and they stick up vertically and they, they create a circle of stones. The most famous example is Stonehenge. Um, I think everybody knows Stonehenge, but there are many, many more stone circles. They're found across many parts of Britain and Ireland. Um, and they were built um, in the Neolithic, which is the Stone Age, and also in the Bronze Age. So, um, the question you asked at the end is, what are they for? Well, this is the, the great thing that archaeologists have spent quite a lot of their time thinking about. Um, a lot of them, when they've been excavated, not all of them, but a lot of them haven't produced very much material. Um, so we, you know, we are wondering why, why they were built. And I think the general sense nowadays is that they were built as meeting places for people to come together to perhaps conduct ceremonies and that sort of thing. That seems very reasonable. Um, what when you t- you know we, we obviously all know about Stonehenge and we've all enjoyed a good traffic jam uh, going past Stonehenge. You have written a book with Professor Colin Richards from the University of the Highlands and Islands called uh, "The Stone Circles: A Field Guide," and in that book you have I think it's four hundred and twenty-four stone circle sites that you've sort of visited, discussed, mapped out etc. I think that's quite a large number of stone circles, but apparently there's even more than that. Could you tell us exactly how many or roughly how many stone circles there are in Britain and Ireland? Well, I think we'll probably actually never know the answer to that because so many of them have been destroyed. So we tend to think of them as being the the large examples, but in this book we cover all stone circles and some of them are actually really quite small. So we have examples which are really just collections of boulders that have been mm-hmm. more or less rolled into uh, into a circle. Um, there are a very large number of those over, uh, particularly in, in the north of, um, of Ireland. Um, and quite a few of those have been destroyed. Um, quite a few of them are, are buried actually under the peat. So there's been peat cutting um, mm-hmm. and, and then we've exposed stone circles. So the, the long answer is we're never really actually going to know how many stone circles there are because so many have been um, destroyed. So many are probably still um, lying underneath the peat. Goodness. So when did you first become aware of your passion for these stone circles? Was it sort of tripping over Stonehenge as a, as a young child or...? <laughs> 
actually my the, the first uh, Stone in the Circle that I went to and was really amazed and impressed by wasn't Stonehenge at all. It was the site um, close by, uh, which is Avebury Stone Circle. Which mm. again, if if you live in the south of Britain, you may you may know. It's it's a huge and impressive site. I mean, the sheer size and scale of it. It's absolutely unbelievable to think that people constructed that without JCBs, without yeah. any kind of machinery. You just it's not even the, the the stone circle itself, which to be fair is extremely impressive. The stones are absolutely huge. And at Avebury, it's not even a single stone circle. There's actually a large stone circle with two s- smaller stone circles set within it. Um, it's the fact that there's a gigantic bank and ditch that's been constructed around it. So we often refer to these as henge monuments. Hmm. Um, and the just sheer amount of time and effort and energy that people must have put in to dig these gigantic ditches and then create these huge banks. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's almost unbelievable. And to think that people did that back in the Neolithic, they didn't have any kind of metal. They would have just had, you know, the most basic of tools. I think I was just um, struck by what a wonderful and incredible um, act this was uh, walking around it. And it's mm. still so impressive today. You know, it's it really is absolutely breathtaking. So imagine that back in the Neolithic when people hadn't been into things like cathedrals, they hadn't been around cities like we have, and to, for them to come across this huge I and mean, impressive um, site, it must have just been incredible. Yeah, well, I mean, I sort of, I guess, back in the, in the sort of Bronze Age, pe- before Twitter and you know social media, people needed something to entertain themselves. So, I guess you know, building giant stone monuments is one way to pass the time. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an element of that because I think these things we tend to think about the end product. So we tend to think yeah. about the stone circle that's going to be produced at the end of the process. But actually, um, for most of the time, um, that would have been a construction site. Yeah. Um, and you would have had people coming together. You would have had people um, uh, coming from all other different parts of the country, probably coming together. They would have been feasting. They would have been socializing, you know. So actually, it's almost many different things. It was a construction site, but it was almost like the the equivalent of a sort of a multiplex, you know, entertainment center for people because it really would have been um, quite, quite a spectacle, I think. Yeah, I mean, if there's that sort of girl you fancy, you can't text or call her, but you know that she's likely going to be hanging out at the henge, you know, most nights. Um, it's very good. I mean, I think, and this is something that we that I've has always fascinated me with things like you know the great cathedrals of Europe, in that the people who designed and started building them did so in the knowledge that they would never ever see their creations being built that it would be their grandchildren who would finish you know lay the final stone on whichever cathedral it might be is that a sort of similar kind of thing with these neolithic circles i mean they must have taken tens if not hundreds of years to build some of them you would think yeah i think that must have been the case so i think um you know a, a lot of these stone circles particularly the large stone circles they they were unlikely to have been finished perhaps in a single person's lifetime so we might be imagining perhaps some some quite powerful influential perhaps families coming together and agreeing to to start building these things but i think the reality is that probably for most of those perhaps influential families it would have been their you know great 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 grandchildren who were seeing the the, the finished finished product 
so yeah, I think it's very much. Um, I think people had a sense that they were they were building something large and permanent, and that that was perhaps a statement of their influence and power beyond their own lifetime. We briefly touched on sort of how the how the the, the science and research of stone circles is still sort of slightly unsure of of what they were for. How much do we know about how they were built? I'm I'm sure this is wrong because I feel like it changes every other week. But you know, you hear things about how the how the rocks in Stonehenge, for example, were supposedly mined in a quarry 300 miles away, and there's no way they possibly you know someone had to drag them there. Do we know a lot about the sort of construction techniques? Like you said, you know, we didn't they didn't have JCBs or grains or anything. You know, getting a rock on it that big on its side to standing on you know standing on its toes, I guess. It's not. It's no mean feat with just sort of, I guess, ropes and and men. Yeah. So it's. I mean, it's quite variable. I mean, Stonehenge is is more exceptional. We do know that a number of the stones at Stonehenge came from much further afield, and of course, they would have had to been moved by people. It's possible that their animals were were utilised as well as traction. You know, they did have domesticated cows, for example, in the Neolithic. Um, and there are other examples. Um, again, um, Colin has done some work on Orkney, which has demonstrated that one of the, the big stone circles there has um, ha- um, incorporates stones that were brought in from, from different parts of the landscape. And so, yeah, you're, you're basically looking at, at, el- at elbow grease. You're looking at ropes and rollers, yeah. lots and lots of people. Again, this goes back to this idea of these being very social things. So it's a chance for people to come and work and labor together and to, to produce um, a, a site at the end of that. And again, Colin, in a different book, has written about the idea of people sort of almost bringing a stone in from a different part of, of the landscape, perhaps where they're living, yeah. and working communally on something. Like bringing a side to Christmas lunch kind of thing. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but in other examples, you know, um, the stones weren't necessarily um, being brought from a long way. Stone circles are a really variable uh, group of monuments, and it's almost a it's almost a misnomer to talk about them as a single a single a group of of sites. Um, you know, some of the sites when you visit a very impressive site like Avebury. And yeah. then you go and see a much smaller, almost like sort of like a little ring of boulders. You know, these these aren't really comparable, other than the fact that they are a circle of circle of stones. In in the set the size and scale of the endeavour, they were really quite different. Having read a bit of your book, which uh, thank you very much for sending me in advance. I believe it's out in is it April? Yes, in April. Um, I was particularly interested by the sort of the spread of of stone circle making it seems to be a sort of sp- predominantly northern european phenomenon we i think i read somewhere that there are some examples in africa and asia but i mean it's mostly just great britain northern ireland and uh, so ireland and uh, northern europe is there is there a sort of rough idea of where stone circling for want of a better phrase started and how it sort of spread it's, I mean, it's quite a diff- quite a difficult um, question to answer because you've got a lot of Neolithic monumentality already in Britain and Ireland before people start building stone circles, and aspects of those monuments have circular stones in them. So we might, for example, look at the passage grave tradition, which is a tradition that's found throughout Northwest Europe, particularly along the Atlantic facade, and that and the, that's a tradition that dates back 
um, thousands of years um, before stone circles. Um, In some instances, perhaps um, one and a half thousand years earlier. And those monuments have um, curbs of stone, which are essentially stones in a circle around around a monument itself. So the origins of stone circles is is quite obscure, I I would say. And then when you actually look at the dating of these things, the earliest stone circles in Britain and Ireland appear to be in northern Scotland, which is, again, perhaps unusual. Yeah. Again, Orkney um, often features um, in, in these sort of narratives. So actually, it's northern Scotland that may have taken apart this, you know, this idea of a circle of stones that was set around a passage, a passage tomb and turned yeah. it into something else. But it, you know, you've got a lot going on, and you've got a lot of people moving around, a lot of people in contact with each other. So, you know, pinpointing the, the, you know, the idea of something was invented here and then spread is 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 difficult to demonstrate. But at the moment, we're we're thinking it might be northern Scotland. Very cool. Um, what's your? Oh, sorry. Before I ask you what your favourite stone circle is, could you briefly tell us the difference between a uh, henge and a stone circle? What, what yeah, makes so- a henge a henge? That makes yes. sense. So a stone circle is literally a, a circle of stones. And then a henge has a bank and a ditch around the outside. So Avebury that I was talking about earlier is a really good example um, of a henge because yeah. it's got a, a big bank and ditch. Stonehenge is actually a um, an odd version of a henge because it's got the bank and ditch in the wrong order. And yeah. a stone circle is just a stone circle, so it doesn't have a, have a, bank, and, a bank and a ditch around it. And of course, it's more than possible to turn a stone circle into a henge. You can come along and dig a bank and ditch later on. Yeah, fantastic. What's the uh, so? See, what's your favourite stone circle of the sort of four hundred and twenty-four you've written about? You must have a favourite. Um, I'm gonna go with Castle Rig in Cumbria. Yeah. Um, because I think there's something about Castle Rig, um, that is uh is just fantastic. And I, it's actually perhaps not the stone circle itself. And to think of these things just as a as a stone circle mm-hmm. is is not appreciating the amount of effort and time and energy that the builders went into placing that stone circle in a very particular place in the landscape. And Castle Rig is the is the best example of that because the stone circle at Castle Rig is surrounded uh, by the Cumbrian fells. Yeah. When you stand in the middle of of Castle Rig Stone Circle, you are also encircled perfectly in every direction by the Cumbrian fells, and it really is one of those just fantastic sites where sort of everything comes together. Of course, it has to be not raining when you're standing in Castle Rig. <laughs> you appreciate that particular aspect of that monument. The other thing about it is it is normally quite there's pros and cons. It's quite it's normally really busy, so you very rarely get it to yourself. So that's like a bit of a con. But the good thing is there's an ice cream van there, so you can have an ice cream. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, very cool. Um, I'm trying to think if I've got a favourite stone circle, but I've I'm not really I'm not really seen enough of them. I quite like I mean, I've been to Stonehenge and I've been to Avebury. Have you ever been to the Karnak Stones in Brittany? I have, I have. And and they're very impressive again. They're quite different because they're sort of linear sets yeah. of stone. But again, this is we were talking earlier about the sort of the origins of of stone circles. You know, you've got things like that happening um, in the on the near continent. So it is very difficult to sort of untangle what's influencing what in terms of the origin of these things. 
your your book and you know lots of your previous work is sort of building on and sort of progressing the work of an earlier archaeologist called Aubrey Burl. Would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit about him and what sort of what he brought to the uh, Neolithic monument game? Yeah, so Aubrey Burl was uh, a fantastic scholar um, and he worked tirelessly to produce a number of books on stone circles. That was his particular interest. Um, and when we look back now at, at these uh, different different books, um, they really are um, wonderful accounts. Yeah. Um, and he had a really sort of wry and dry sense of humor that came across in the in the books that he wrote. Um, so in particular, his guide to the stone circles, we were um, really inspired by Aubrey's um, approach. You know, he has a wonderful turn of phrase and myself and Colin um, tried to replicate that sort of really convivial mm. and um, personable um, approach that Aubrey brought, brought to his account of the stone circles. So your book is very sort of extensive, extensive in its coverage of uh, stone circles of the UK. And, you know, you talk about Castle Rig and Stonehenge all being quite busy places. No, but I mean, inc incredibly, you know, you go to sites like Castle Rig and you go to sites like um, uh, Avebury and they're, you know, really, really busy. And then there's so many of them which, you know, you visit them and you never see another soul. So the vast majority of them uh, are are completely empty you know i mean they must get they do get visitors but um you know the chances are that you don't you don't see the people what's a sort of for want of a better description a sort of underrated stone circle one that's sort of quiet not particularly well known about one that sort of say you know yourself and colin and other other archaeologists might keep close to your chest because you know it's this, this sort of underground stone circle well um if for the, for people who would like to visit uh, stone circles that perhaps aren't packed with tourists, um, mm. I can highly rem highly recommend um, Aberdeenshire. So there's a set of stone circles up there. They're really um, a little bit different from from some of the stone circles, particularly down in the south of Britain. So they're known as recumbent stone circles, um, and they're Bronze Age in date. So they're a bit yeah. later than the ones we've been talking about. Um, and there's really quite a lot of them in Aberdeenshire. Um, and they are absolutely fantastic. So some of them are really large, impressive monuments. You know, they're using, again, really big stones, not quite the size of Avebury, but they are mm. very big and impressive sites. You almost always have those sites to, to yourselves. And you've got the fantastic um, Scottish mountains as, as a backdrop. So there are some absolutely wonderful site, sites there. A particular favorite of mine is, is Sunhoney, which has got a lovely name as well. Um, but there are really many of them. So, you know, going to going to some of the Scottish sites, mm. um, there are quite a few on, on islands as well, which is, is always always quite fun because that also involves, you know, a ferry journey. So, you know, if you like a bit of adventure, um, I think you could go, you could have quite a lot of fun sort of going for a nice walk and visiting a stone circle. Sun Honey sort of re reminds me of a sort of grunge band from Seattle in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like the idea of adventure, and I particularly liked in your in your book it, in the introduction. You know, it's not just a uh, sort of uh, you know, hi, we're professors of archaeology. We're going to tell you about some stone, stone circles we found. You sort of encourage the reader to get out and do some field work, for want of a better description. I mean, obviously, don't touch the stone circles if you can avoid it. But you sort of 
you provide ordnance survey locations for all of um, for all of the circles and how to get there. And you you know say some are very remote and you know, require actually quite a bit of decent navigation to get to. And then again, sort of what what to do when you get there that would actually be quite quite helpful for the scientific community. Can you give us a sort of brief oversight of you know if you stumble across a stone circle or you know go and go and find one what you should what you should do how you can help i mean uh, yeah the, the the book is very much designed not as a sort of a passive information here's the facts although of course we do pro- provide the facts on on the site but the idea is very much for for people to go out there and 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 think about the sites themselves and we provide quite a sort of a, a almost like a, a checklist of things that you can do if you're a keen stone circler and you're out mm. visiting these sites so is that the is that the sort of official terminology a stone circler or i think it should be even if yeah even I, if it I like it um, <laughs> so you know the the idea is um is that you perhaps you know you, you you can appreciate its landscape setting as i was just talking about at castle rig you know having a think about what you can actually see from the site. So these sites wouldn't just be, as I was suggesting with Castlerig, you know, they're just not just not just plonked down anywhere. They're quite carefully positioned in the landscape. So is it yeah. landscape features? Are there other sites around and about that you can see, perhaps earlier sites? So I was saying again earlier that there were tradition of monument building before stone circles. So were there were were any of those sites around about? Um and then it's also looking at the stone circle itself. And and um, again, it, over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, we've become really interested in geology and its work on things like Stonehenge, the work that Colin's been doing up in Orkney, that's demonstrated that actually these are often quite geologically complex monuments. And so have a look at the have a look at the different geologies in a in a circle. But then also these are these are very sort of physical things. So what do you what do you see when you visit these mm. sites? You know, um, and and we just want people to to engage with them and and go along and and think about not just you know the, the the size and shape and all of the facts, but you know the sort of the experience of actually being at those sites for themselves and perhaps what it was like for people in the past as well. Yeah, you briefly touched on uh, something before called a recumbent stone circle. Could you tell us sort of what the different different styles of these these monuments is, and what you know what is a what what was the difference between a recumbent circle and, and another type of circle? Yeah, so a recumbent stone circle is a particular type of stone circle. Um, it's found um, in North uh, East Scotland. And the recumbent is basically a, a stone that's lying down flat. Yeah. So there's a there's a stone part of the stones of the circuit of stones that's lying down flat. It's recumbent. Yeah. And then either side of those are two um, upright stones. So it creates a sort of a, a very distinctive shape, and that seems to be a key focus um, of these particular monuments. And then you've got different types over again in, in Ireland. So again, you have that flat uh, recumbent stone in in the southern Irish site. But then up in the north, we have a very distinctive set of stone circles, which are these sort of funny little boulder circles. Um, and they're really interesting, really, really interesting um, because they're much smaller, but they're often in complexes. So with this with this set of monuments, what they're not doing is, is building a single giant stone circle, which we see um, in lots of places, but they're repeat, probably repeatedly coming back and building smaller stone circles, 
So it's, um, you know, there's a var- variation on, on the theme, really. And again, I mentioned earlier, these are things that are built over a really long period of time. Yeah. So some of the very earliest examples were built around about 3000 BC, which is at the start of the late Neolithic. But again, over in Ireland, they carry on building these stone circles predominantly in the in the Bronze Age. So, you know, this is a tradition that had a, a, a was was around for you know one and a half thousand years. It really was uh, quite a diverse um, form of building monuments. Yeah, I mean, I I still the sort of the time scale of it all still freaks me out a little bit. You know, the idea that we right now are sort of closer to the birth of Jesus Christ than some of these stone circles are to you know to to jesus christ it's 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 sort of thinking about 2500 years bc that kind of thing is it's crazy to me just you know so you're saying that the oldest stone circle is about you know 5000 odd years ago what when do we sort of have a rough idea of when stone circling uh went out of fashion when was the sort of last one built that we know of um it's quite a difficult <laughs> question to I mean, answer. Was, uh, yeah <laughs> um because it's very actually very, it's actually quite difficult to date these things mm. so unless you have a lot of deposits in in the monument um and even then they date when they were used and of course these were things that were in the landscape for a really long period of time so we know that people came back and did things at these monuments over an extended period of time I mean, why wouldn't they? Because they were standing there on the landscape. Yeah. So actually dating them is really quite difficult. And what you really need is you either need something from the, the very bottom of a of the ditch, if you've got yeah. a honch monument, or you need something from the socket of the stone. So the hole in which the stone is actually sitting. Yeah. And obviously that's quite challenging because you don't want to dig around the socket of a stone because it's going to fall over. Yeah. Um, so it's quite difficult to date these things. Um. So it, it, I, I would say we probably can't a, can't answer that, that that question, but we know that there's a very long um, use of these sites. So th- we th- there's um, there's probably no stone circles predating 3000 BC, but then yeah. we've got this really long period of them being constructed, and of course they're then used. People would be using the stone circles that were perhaps built 100, 200, 500 years ago. Um, I'm particularly interested in this sort of, I say idea, but I mean, I guess it is proven in some cases of, of stone circles sort of being used in conjunction with uh, constellations and time of year as a sort of method of <clears throat> marking the seasons. What? So how many of those types of structures have you have you found and sort of how do how do they work, I guess, would be my next question. Yeah, I mean, you see certainly um, from the middle Neolithic onwards an increasing interest and focus on celestial bodies, for want of a better phrase. So particularly the sun, but increasingly the moon. Again, the sort of the most famous example is Stonehenge. This is where it works really well because that's aligned. The particular focus is uh, is on uh, uh, mid-winter. And then Mike Parker Pearson has has written extensively on this um, particular topic. Um, and Stonehenge more broadly, mm. um, but there seems to be an interest in marking the seasons. If you're if you're a farmer, um, that's going to be really really important to you. And there's really good evidence that a number of these are focused on sort of key points like mid mid winter um, mid mid winter because it's the sh- you know it's the shortest day and everything gets a bit e- it gets a bit easier after that. Yeah, so they keep telling me. Yeah, yeah. Although in, in <laughs> now in January it seems uh, seems a long way off. Yeah. Um, up in Scotland, the I was talking about the recumbent stone circles earlier. 
Um, they they seem to have a particular interest and focus on the moon. And again, there's uh, an archaeologist, Richard Bradley, has has done a lot of work and and sort of emphasis on on cycles of the moon. So an increasing sort of interest, I suppose, in 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 the the moon and and the sun and and probably what that tells people about where they are and their place in the world. Um, going back to to all things Scotland, you know, I like I like that sort of each part of the UK sort of has a distinctive style of stone circle. Do you have a sort of particular favourite style of stone circle? Like you might have a particular favourite genre of music or, you know? Um, uh, no, I, li- I, li- I, like, <laughs> them like, them I like them all equally, I to think. To be fair, I say the same thing when people ask me about what my favourite music is, so that's fair <laughs> enough. I think they've got different, diff- this is the thing, there's, there's sort of different things about them. They literally aren't all the same and that's really quite fun. Um, when you're out visiting them, you know, is it is it going to be a really gigantic, uh, really impressive visual stone circle, or actually is it something much smaller? And and often it's often the smaller ones actually can be really pleasingly quite surprising and pleasant. And it, it kind of all depends on how it all comes together on the day. It's often yeah. due to the weather, I think, as as well, <laughs> and you know how you're feeling. But uh, yeah, it is quite fun just going out and seeing what you can encounter. With regards to a structure like Stonehenge, which you know I would say is probably reasonably well known and probably extensively studied, uh, what what stone circle has been the most fruitful from a sort of archaeological standpoint? You know, for, have we got anything we can still learn from Stonehenge, or have we sort of completed that one? If that makes sense. Um, I don't think we're ever going to know everything we would like to know. Um, yes. Stonehenge, of course, has been um, uh, excavated extensively um, in the past. Um, it's been difficult to uh, for, for archaeologists to interpret what the really old excavations meant. Perhaps we do them, well, we certainly do them differently now. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, evidence of the Stonehenge Riverside project, which is, again, Mike Parker Pearson and colleagues, their work has demonstrated that actually you always need to be to be to be looking at these sites because things move on. We can now tell an awful lot more. We're much better as archaeologists. We have a whole range of scientific techniques um, at our disposal, and that that project has really illustrated that you can you can learn masses of new stuff about sites that we think we know quite yeah. a lot about already. Um, there is there is no single stone circle um, that it that, that tells you everything you need to know because they're all different. And so Stonehenge tells you an awful lot about Stonehenge, but it doesn't tell you anything about what's going on with the recumbent stone circles of Scotland, for example, or in fact, what's going on with a lot of stone circles um, yeah. in Britain. So um, it, I'm, I'm not advocating we go and dig every single one, but I think this is a, an evolving and a moving field and we can always learn more. And they are, you know, new projects can tell us a whole range of different new things about these sites. You're obviously a sort of very distinguished and serious archaeologist, scientist. I hear a lot, or I say I hear a lot, we as a society hear a lot, you know, things such as Stonehenge, you know, oh, we don't know how they were built, the Great Pyramids of Giza, it was done by aliens. How does that sort of uh, impact your work? Is it just quite a funny little sidebar that there are people out there who think these things which are quite clearly not built by extraterrestrials are sort of, you know... When you see programs such as Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, you just sort of sit there going, "What on earth are these people talking about?" Well, I think um, I think the simple answer is we do know how these sites were built. That's <laughs> what archaeologists yeah. 
spent their careers studying. So, um, you know, I think we're actually really pretty confident that we understand the processes. And I think um, we we need to give um, people in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age the credit that they deserve, yeah. which is they were more than capable of building these things, as is evidenced by the fact that the sites the sites are there. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think archaeologists, we, we you know, we're confident that we've we've done our homework. We we know we, we, we've got a good understanding of what these sites um, are and how they were constructed. Fantastic. Well, that's a perfect place to finish, I think. Um, Vicky Cummings and Colin Richards' book is out in April. I highly suggest everyone listening to this should go and buy it. Um, there'll be further information in the show notes. Um, Vicky, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to learn about all things Stone Circle with you. Thanks very much. Uh, special thanks to Toby Keel, my editor and producer. And thank you very much. And see you all next week. Thank you very much.